almost coming to the end of our series on the kingdom of God and uh, today it's about God's kingdom triumph over death it's the biggie today the biggie Uh, we've seen that God's kingdom is not about physical territory kingdoms of the earth are about physical territory and we see all around the world people fighting for territory so they can have power and influence and so on. But the kingdom of God is not like that. It's the rule and reign of God. We're fighting for hearts, not for territory. And uh, the kingdom of, of heaven and the kingdom on earth is where God's will is done. And as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the more God's rule is seen on, on earth, the more it is like heaven. And uh, it was seen in the life of Jesus. Jesus was a manifestation of the kingdom of God. He perfectly obeyed the Father. Uh, He was obedient to the Father. He followed the Father's plan and will. And so he could confidently say to the people around him and to those that are listening to him, repent for the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of God is at hand. Why repent? Because the kingdom of God coming near and Jesus being a manifestation of that meant that those people who responded could actually enter the kingdom of God. They could repent, they could see the kingdom of God which was previously hidden from them by the prince of this world. They could see the kingdom of God and they could enter into it because Jesus was there, a manifestation of it. And you know, through faith in Jesus, we are born again by the Spirit of God. That firstly, we can see the kingdom. As I said, we are blinded by the prince of this world so that we cannot see the kingdom of God and the glory of God in the, in the gospel of Christ. And so we are born again so that we can see the kingdom of God and it becomes something that we desire. And God, by his Spirit, enables us again to be born again so that we can enter the kingdom of God and we become sons and daughters of the living God, sons and daughters of the kingdom. Jesus uh, demonstrated the power of the kingdom to reverse or counter the effects of the devil's work, such as casting out demons, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, subduing nature, forgiving sins and raising the dead. And as wonderful as these things were, and of course for many people it convinced them who Jesus was and why they should repent and turn to him, they were not the full coming of the manifestation of the kingdom of God. They were just a foretaste. And um, the Gospel writer John, when describing the miracles of Jesus, he calls them signs. I think he's the only gospel writer who calls the miracles of Jesus signs. And um, Jesus, the first miracle that John records is when Jesus turned the water into wine at the marriage of Cana in Galilee. And his mother Mary and he were invited to this wedding and the wine ran out and uh, the host was distressed uh, and Jesus solved the problem by turning water into wine. He wanted the celebration not to be spoilt. And this is what John says. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples 
believed in him. Now I've had people say to me, um, this was not really one of the miracles of Jesus. It's been added later just to spice up the Gospels. It's too trivial for Jesus to turn water into wine when he can raise the dead, when he can heal the sick. But what does John say? And he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. If Jesus chose to manifest his glory and cause his disciples to believe in him through this miracle, we should not despise it because it's only a sign. It's pointing to something else. A sign may be very impressive or it may be unimpressive, but it usually points to something greater than itself. Life is full of signs, road signs and all sorts of signs, aren't they? And, uh, and they point to something usually better than themselves, greater than themselves. And we are not meant to be standing there gazing at the signs all right, and, and marvelling at what a wonderful sign it is. We have to give attention to where it's pointing. And I believe these signs of Jesus are twofold. Firstly, they point to him and they authenticate the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, God's promised one. They're signs that point to him. They authenticate him. And we get an example of this in Jesus' reply to John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist uh, fell out with Herod and and, uh, Herod's wife and uh, he was put in prison. Now John was wonderful. He was a herald of Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus. He pointed to Jesus and did a wonderful job. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was nothing wrong in John's um, ministry at all. And he joyfully welcomed the bridegroom. He said, you know, that here is the bridegroom. I must decrease and he must increase. But now he's in prison, languishing in prison, and he gets a bit disillusioned about it all. What's all this? What's happening? What's going on? And this is what Matthew records. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So they were signs confirming that Jesus was the Messiah. Secondly, they are pointing to the fullness of the kingdom to come. Remember we have this phrase, the kingdom is now and not yet. Yes, there are manifestations of the kingdom now, but it's nothing like what is to be. But they are signs pointing to that. And John writing in Revelation about the new heavens and the new earth, he says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So the things that Jesus demonstrated in part in his ministry will come into fullness for all those who belong to God. The crying and pain and all those things will pass away. Now then, if 
the demonstration of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, was limited to the life of Jesus on earth, uh, or even if, um, in, you know, however spectacular that was, he was only able to touch a few people. And also, if it was limited to what the church was able to do, um, you know, following the birth of the church in the New Testament, then it's disappointing, to say the least, if, if this is all that the kingdom of God is going to be seen. But the New Testament triumphantly tells us that Jesus came to destroy our greatest enemy, which is death. And not only that, he will destroy the devil, the one who currently holds the power of death. That's what the Bible tells us. Death is our greatest enemy, but the devil at the moment holds the power of death. So why did Jesus come? Why, why was Jesus born a human being? Why was the word made flesh? There are many reasons for that, many answers. It could be certainly that um, Jesus wanted to show us what God was like. God is a, a spirit. We cannot understand him so easily. But Jesus came and said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, Jesus is the greatest manifestation of God. And uh, also, we see that um, Jesus came to save us from our sins. We know that he came as our substitute. A perfect man offered himself uh, on the cross and took the punishment for our sins. And so, yes, that's, perhaps that's the main reason that he came. Or he came to give us new laws. Uh, you know, love one another as I have loved you. That's a new commandment. But John, in his first letter, gives the overall reason why Jesus came. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The things that are wrong in this life, personally and in creation, are the result of the devil's work. And the start of the devil's work was to deceive man in the garden. We know that God provided all that man needed and said you can have anything. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of good, sorry, of good of knowledge, of the, the tree of life, beg your pardon, and the tree of life. And uh, th that was fine, and, and man had all that, that uh, he needed. But the devil came and said, um, yeah, if you eat from that tree, you'll be like God. You, don't you want to be like God and be like him and know the, uh, good and evil? Uh, and he said, you know, the, the things that God has said to you, that if you eat of it, you will die, you certainly won't. You really won't die. God's not going to do that. You surely won't die. But Adam and Eve disobeyed, and that disobedience not only brought death to them, but death to the whole of the human race. Sin entered the world, and the whole of creation was corrupted by that. Death was a judgment on sin. That's what it was. And that death is threefold. It's spiritual. You remember that, Jesus, that Adam um, lost contact with God. Once they had sinned, um, there was that communion with God was lost. It was spiritual. It was physical. It was never intended that man should die, that his body should wear out and die. But now, man now dies and dies. And it's eternal as well because there is a judgment to face later on. And Paul, speaking of Jesus, he says this, He must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
Now when people raised, when Jesus raised people from the dead, as recorded in the New Testament, they are not a fulfillment of this, not a complete fulfillment of this, because all those people, such as the son of the, the, um, uh, the, the woman in, in uh, Nain, and uh, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus, Jesus' friend Lazarus, although they were raised, they all died again, just as we do. They died again. And um, as well as these being acts of compassion on Jesus' part, they were signs that he had authority over death. But it wasn't the complete thing. It wasn't that it was just a sign. And Jesus refers to and points to this greater thing when he's talking to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, uh, just before he raised him from the dead. Jesus told her, I am the one who raises the dead and gives them life. And he would demonstrate that uh, very shortly. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, like everyone else, shall live again. He is given eternal life for believing in me and shall never perish. Do you believe this, Martha? So not just for Lazarus and the few people, but this eternal life and this raising from the dead is being offered to all those who believe in him. Now, I think 2,000 years ago, um, people feared death, perhaps mainly for what may be after death. There were many teachings, different religions and so on, and people feared what was beyond death. Um, but today, however, with 2,000 years of Christian tradition and the church's teaching on life after death, then I think people now more fear the mode of death. Will I, will I die from cancer? Will I, you know, how will I die? And so on, fear. And um, Woody Allen expressed it well. He said, it's not that I'm afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Okay. But, but that's it, isn't it, you know, for many people. The trouble is that many people have adopted the Christian hope and without understanding or embracing the reason for it. They've picked it up from the church and so on, and from other people. Therefore, in many cases, it can be a false hope or a false confidence. I'm sure all of you who are house owners have a house insurance, don't you? Is it up to date? Have you paid your premium? That's good. Okay, and um, although we don't want anything to happen to our house, to catch fire or whatever, we have that reassurance of that, that policy that, that says it will be replaced if, if these things happen. Now, just imagine for a moment um, that uh, our house, we're insured. Okay? Um, we didn't read all the small print, but we're insured. And, uh, but suddenly we find our house is beginning to sink. It's subsiding. And although as um, distressing as that is, it's not a problem because we're insured. So we get onto the insurance company and say, can I have some forms, please, because we've got subsidence and a bit of a silence at the end of the, the phone. And then the voice comes back, I'm very sorry, sir, but you were not insured for subsidence. You live in a very high subsidence area. CT5 and CT6 is a very high subsidence area. And you should have paid an extra premium I'm sorry you're not insured. So we were living in a fool's paradise, weren't we? Because we hadn't read the small print. Okay, we hadn't read the small print. Okay. And, um, you know, particularly at funerals, 
Um, the bereaved are looking for comfort and consolation and reassurance. And it's quite understandable that friends and relatives, as best they're able, they want to give that comfort uh, and assurance. That's what they want to do. But the Bible assurances are not universal. Right? They are particular. And they relate to how the person who has died, how they related to Jesus in this life. But it's very natural what we do at funerals because people are very sad. But we just need to understand it's not universal. It's very particular. And uh, Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, the greatest of which is death, referred to as the last enemy. But destroying the devil's work depended on his resurrection. So the resurrection of Jesus. And the doctrine of the resurrection is not optional. Right? It's not something we tag on the end. It's very central and essential to the Christian gospel. But sadly, over the years, there have been people who wanted to make it easier for people to be Christians. And the, Christ the person who was inquiring said, what's the minimum I have to believe to be a Christian? And trying to help, they say, well, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth, but you have to believe this, this, this and you don't have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You do, because it's absolutely central and crucial to our salvation. When Jesus, nearing the end of his earthly life, and was with his disciples approaching Jerusalem, uh, he more than once told them what was going to happen, that he was going to be taken by wicked men and put to death. Um, but he always added to that and he would be raised again uh, to eternal life. It was always added. And uh, you know, the, in the death of Jesus, he paid the penalty for our sin, but in his rising, he demonstrated that he had the power over death. So it's very, very important. Jesus did not rise just for himself, just to make a nice end to the story. He did it for us. It was for us that he did it. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes at great length how this works, how the resurrection of Jesus works for us. And if you're not familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, it's quite a long chapter, but it's all about this, and I would encourage you to read it. I'm just going to be quoting certain bits from it. But he describes Christ's resurrection in one place at the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And those who have fallen asleep he is referring to Christians who have died. So that the resurrection is the first fruits of those who have died believing in Christ. And first fruits is a term used in association with the harvest. If, say, a field was planted with wheat um, and, uh, and, th and this people were looking for the harvest, when the first shoots appeared and then we had a stalk and an ear that was referred to as the first fruits and they harvested that and they took it to the priest uh, and they got the priest to bless it and they gave thanks to God and it was a sign of what was to come it was a foretaste of the full harvest that was what was to come now it wasn't separate from the harvest it wasn't like the farmer said, well, okay, sow this field. I'm going to take a few grains here, a few seeds, and I'm going to a hothouse. I'm going to plant them there so that they'll have an, an extra boost. It wasn't like that. It was the same field, the same harvest. And this is the same for us. 
you know, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was the first fruits of a bigger harvest of which we are a part. So we are that closely associated with Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus saved us from our sins, but he rose as the first fruits of the harvest that we will be part of. He is the guarantee. And when Jesus rose from the dead, there was a continuity. Right? He, he, he was recognized um, as Jesus, but there was a difference about his body. You may remember that on a number of occasions he appeared to the disciples, seemingly passing through walls or doors. And his body was fit for heaven. It was prepared for the, for the new existence that he was going to enjoy. And that will be ours as well. Our resurrection body, Paul tells us, will be fit for our new habitation. And um, this is what John tells us in his first letter. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. In other words, we shall be like his resurrection body. If you want to know what it's like, it's like it's going to be like. It's like Jesus when he rose from the dead. Because we shall see him as he is. Belief and trust in Christ's resurrection is our guarantee of eternal life. Without it, without it, we have no guarantee. And it's so important, Paul says, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, and he makes quite an argument of this, in there, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is futile. It's a waste of time. Right? We're still dead in our sins. We have no hope. And of all people, we are to be pitied because we've given our life to this. And if there's nothing at the end of it, if we're not going to receive eternal life, then people can laugh at us and say it's all for nothing. You're all living in a false paradise. Right? Many people have actually, literally given their lives because they believe in Jesus and they're looking forward to the resurrection when Jesus comes again. The, in the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul goes on into great detail about, about how the resurrection of Jesus secures our resurrection. If you'd like to turn to that, I haven't asked you to turn to the other scriptures, but 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. Paul starts off by quoting some Old Testament here. And he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What we need to understand is, it is not dying that is the hurtful thing, the harmful thing. Because dying is when the spirit leaves the body. That's, that's the action of dying. That's merely that instant. And it happens to everybody. The spirit leaves the body at some point, And we know that the person has died. It, it is death that is the wages of sin that is harmful and that matters. Now Paul tells us in Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So in death, we either receive the wages of sin, right? sin pays its wages, or 
if we have faith in Jesus, we receive eternal life. It's one or the other. And if we've received the free gift of God, death is not our enemy. Death is it's merely passing from this existence into the nearer presence of God, into the presence of Jesus. Death is not our enemy. But sin will not pay its wages to us because they, they were paid to Jesus. Those wages, the outcome, the result of sin was, was placed on Jesus and he paid the, the price for us. It's been dealt with. And therefore for us, death has no sting. Death has no sting. The sting has been drawn for us. But without that, without that sting being drawn, it is still, still there. And um, verse 56, if you're still looking at the Bible, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So the sting is not death. Death is not the sting itself, but sin. Now, for most of us, Life has its trials and the older we get we find our bodies are wearing out and things go wrong and sometimes that can be very painful and life can be very difficult. And we may get to a point where really um, it's, it would be a blessed relief to actually die, to leave this life. And of course the campaigners for assisted suicide, that's their idea. Like, we should not suffer anymore because um, it's too painful. It's, it's, it's too difficult to go on living. And um, sometimes we, we see on a tombstone, RIP, don't we? Rest in peace, which is what people trust that the person who's died will do. But there is a sting in the tail. There is a sting in the tail because... Um, sin will pay its wages and the judgment of God on sin is absolutely certain. The Bible says that it's given to man once to die and then to face the judgment. Right? That is certain. Sin will pay its wages unless it's been dealt with in this life through faith in Jesus Christ. So what's the law got to do with it then? It says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Now, God's law, the Bible tells us, is good and just and holy. There's nothing wrong with the law whatsoever. But the law cannot save us because we cannot keep it. We always fall short of the law. And the law is always right. right? We can't argue with the law. It's always right. But the law does not lift a finger to help us. And so the law itself cannot save us. The good thing it can do, it can convince us as we look at the law that we're more sinful than we thought we were and that we actually need someone to save us because we can't save ourselves. Paul said, I, I wouldn't have known what coveting was unless the law said do not covet. So as we look into the law, it shows us just how sinful we are and how much uh, we need a, a, a saviour. And we stand condemned. Actually, knowledge of the law can make us more fearful of death. If our sin is now exposed to be more sinful than we thought, we can be more fearful of death and not less. And it's a weapon 
that Satan uses against us and the power of that weapon is unforgiven sin. And this is very important. What, what is the weapon that, that Satan can, can level at us, can use against us believers even? It is the power of unforgiven sins. The Bible says that the devil, who knows the law better than we do, accuses us before God day and night. And he can accuse us as well. He uses the law to condemn us. Right? And he, in other words, he throws the book at us. And um, this is what it says in Revelation. Because we can triumph over this. We can triumph over the devil's schemes. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So how did they conquer him? By the blood of the Lamb. That is, that Jesus' death was sufficient to cover all our sin. There was, there's nothing left if we've confessed our sin. It covers it. And the word of our testimony. We have to declare that. We have to declare that Satan has nothing in us. There's a story that's told of a preacher. And his habit was, as he went into the pulpit, to kneel down before he preached. He would kneel down and pray. And one day, he, as he was kneeling, uh, he felt all these thoughts coming to him. And, and they were accusations about his sin, reminding him uh, of, of the things that he'd done wrong and his sin. And the devil was saying, how can you preach when you're a sinner like that? How can, how can you preach to these people? And, and the man was, was, was stumped for a moment. And then he said, yes, you're absolutely right. You've named everyone and there's a lot more. And they're all covered by the blood of the Lamb. I am righteous in God's sight, so be gone. And he got up and preached a very powerful sermon. And that is what it's about. You know, it's about the fact that Satan may accuse us. And, and the accusation, the power of that, is unforgiven sin. But if our sin is forgiven, he has nothing in us whatsoever. Nothing. So it's so important uh, that, that we, as people say, keep short accounts with God. Otherwise... Satan will use the unconfessed sin to condemn us. doesn't mean, say, we lose our salvation, but he will condemn us. But we need not be condemned. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. One day, Satan will be totally destroyed. But as the kingdom, children of the kingdom, we can triumph over him by countering his accusations. Do you have a testimony that your faith in Jesus Christ, that his death on your behalf has triumphed over all the works of the enemy. Are you convinced about that? That's what Jesus came to do, to destroy all the works of the enemy. And that last enemy is death. But for now, we can resist him. We should understand his schemes, the fact that he knows the word of God and can throw the book at us. But we can stand, we can overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony that Jesus has saved me. He's made me righteous. And one day, through the resurrection of Jesus, 
we will, have, we will be resurrected as well. We will have newness of life. And the devil will be de totally destroyed. And we will live in God's eternal kingdom. So it's good news. There is victory over death. Victory over the fear of death now. And it's all through the wonderful death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing a hymn or song as we close. It's an old song, an old hymn, but it's been revived. And verse 2 says this, okay, and it's rather relevant to what I've been saying. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Jesus is in heaven on our behalf. Our righteousness is in heaven. And that's where we look. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. And God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The truth of that is absolutely fantastic. You know, when we worry about our righteousness and, and how we're doing and how we're not doing, we look at Jesus and say, my righteousness is in heaven. All right? and, and that righteousness is before God all the time. All right? He is ever before God on our behalf. So let's sing that.